Welcome back to the podcast. My guest this week is Jason Chan, VP of Information Security at Netflix. Um, runs one of the more influential and interesting security programs in Silicon Valley. Welcome to the show, Jason. How are you? Hey, Ryan. Thanks. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. During the course of uh, uh, preparing for this podcast, I found out you did an at-stake stint that makes you a member of the at-stake mafia. Uh, can we take a, a, a step back and give me uh, your path into this crazy industry? I know you studied sociology in college. How does someone get out of kind of a social, sociology interest in college into cybersecurity? Was that uh... This is a little bit of a chance. I had originally wanted to go into law enforcement and my eyesight is so bad. I think that was a, a non-starter. So I'd always liked the idea of you know, chasing adversaries. So cybersecurity seemed like a like a nice option. And, I, and I would, I'd always been into computers as a kid. So yeah, and then with that stake, uh, I, f- I started in security. Uh, I did a few years in general software and IT, and then uh, started in security at the Space and Naval Warfare Center in Charleston, South Carolina. And then shortly after that, joined at stake. And I was there for about four years until the acquisition by Symantec in 2004. Ah, so you were there through the acquisition. You're East Coast guy. Yeah, I was. I was actually based out of the Raleigh, North Carolina office. It was headquartered out of Cambridge, but I was actually in North Carolina. Someone told me that I had to ask you about your fascination with running. Um, you're an ultra marathoner. I am. Yeah, yeah. Ultra marathon is, uh, I guess, technically anything longer than a marathon. So anything longer than about twenty six point two miles. Yeah. What's the psychology there? Is there like a, a certain this is how you get out to your head and get into your body and and relax? Is it a thing you've always done as a kid? I, I am always fascinated by people who run marathons and then people who think that marathons are just like a week. I'll, I'll go do more. <laughs> Yeah, well, I've been running for probably about 30 years. I kind of followed in my dad's footsteps, and um, I kind of have the wrong genetics to be a fast runner. So when I when I did my first marathon in 2008, uh, I enjoyed it, but I, I wasn't really looking forward to a lot of training to try to get incrementally faster. But then when I found out people actually ran further than that, um, that kind of intrigued me. So I, I started, I did my first uh, ultra marathon in 2008. And Wait, sense- why? Why though? Why? What's the... Uh, well, I'd, I'd been trail running probably at that point for about seven or eight years. You know, I really like to be out in the mountains and, and in the dirt. So, um, and then trail running and ultra running are kind of go together. So I, I decided to give that a shot. And I think at this point I've done about, I think a little over 90 ultra marathons since 2008. I was listening to a podcast with an ultra, ultra marathon runner, uh, Courtney. I don't remember her la- how they how to pronounce her last name. I think it might've been Courtney DeSaltz or DeSalter. Uh, yeah, probably Courtney Dowalter. Yep. Dowalter. Dowalter. And she had a very, very simple explanation for her fascination with long distance running. She's just curious to see how far she can take her human body with uh, just using her legs. And she had done these 200 mile, 240 mile Moab races. And there was a really interesting discussion of the, you know, the mentality that goes in one, the training for this, and then just the the sheer uh, uh, agony of 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 just coping with these races, and I'm wondering, do you feel that as well? And and is there is there a is there a security connection or a thinking connection to that agony of the training uh, um, prior to all the race? Yeah, I, I guess I'm I'm not as into the agony, but I I, I do like the preparation. I, I like the logistics, the planning. 
uh, both the physical training, the mental training, and, and really just even thinking about what kind of gear you need to use. Um, I, I guess with, with ultra marathons, there you never really know if you're going to finish. And I think there's something you know, in today's, today's world where at least for many of us, like in Silicon Valley, we have, we have life, you know, pretty easy. So it's, it's kind of nice to test yourself to, to do something where you're not sure if you're going to be able to do it. There's something to be said about that. And then, and then just spending lots of hours uh, out in nature is, is pretty great. What's the longest race you've ever run? I actually did that same race that Courtney did, the Tahoe 200 miler. And that was uh, about 206 miles uh, around Lake Tahoe. I did that in oh, 2018. Okay. Yeah. Did you finish? I did. I did. It took me uh, much longer than it took Courtney. But Yeah, uh, one of the finish. fun things in the podcast was that she had finished 10 hours before the person who was in second place. She actually had enough time to have a nap, have a full dinner, a glass of wine before the second place guy came in. And there was this uh, fascination with just the the agony and the sheer length of time for these races and 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 how people sleep during this I, I think she slept for like a minute and it felt like it was the longest sleep she'd ever had and how your mind plays tricks with you and I'm wondering if there's any there's any of that with you any sort of like yeah, mental there's definitely a lot of you know, men, your brain will play some, play some tricks on you. I, I had a lot of hallucinations that weekend. I, I actually finished that race probably about almost two days later than Courtney did. Um, I, wow. it took me, it took me about, I think about 92 hours and I slept about, about two and a half hours over, across four nights. So Damn. it was, uh, pretty intense. Just, yeah. What is the recovery from that? Like, Ooh, yeah, that one was, that one was is pretty it two rough. weeks, three weeks, a month. What is that? It took me probably about a month to kind of feel reasonably normal just because it's, you know, it's a lot of, a lot of fatigue from the lack of sleep. Your, your body just gets beaten up and, and your brain really it takes quite a while to just to recover and feel like you're reasonably normal again. Do you find that it helps you cope with the rigors of being uh, uh, responsible for security at a brand here where, you know, the significance of consequences of losses are very high? Ooh, any of geez. that, any of that re- trail running preparation, recovery, agony? Does any of that prepare you at all for? Yeah. I don't want to call you a CISO, but a CISO yeah. in today's world responsible for these programs. Yeah, I mean, because you know, of course, working in security and security leadership, like like many roles, can be pretty stressful. And I think with ultra marathoning, when you're out there for you know a day or longer, I mean, there's there's so many ups and downs, and um, you're going to have some emergencies, you know, like an incident or something like that. And and ultimately, you need to be able to manage your way through that. Um, with And of course, the preparation helps you think about things like tabletops and, and you know, all the training that goes in uh, just to get your job done. So I think there's there's definitely some, some corollary there. Does it give you a more calming perspective on things? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think I'm a little bit lucky in that I, I naturally tend to be pretty even keeled and pretty calm. And that I think that just I just that just happens to uh, be a be a pretty good trait in security leadership. So I think I got lucky there. But certainly the, you know, running and spending a lot of time thinking and, you know, problem solving on the fly, I think certainly helps too. There must be some value there. Uh, let's switch gears to security a little bit. Um, I've listened to a bunch of your talks and I like the way you frame sections of our industry. If you want to put it that way, you frame it in this uh, couple of your talks about this, uh, monolithic world that we lived in that was driven by an SDL security development life cycle created by Michael Howard and those guys for that 
world. And now we're in this world of everything going to the cloud, microservices, containers, and so on, build fast, break things. Do we need to rewrite our entire concept of what the SDL is, or has it already been done? Or are we moving so fast and things are so chaotic that uh, the concept of this uh, design through ship paradigm is just old and outdated now. Help me understand where your head is there. Sure. Yeah. And and I mean, and I give I give Microsoft you know a lot of credit for the amount of investment. And, and when I was at Stake, I think I spent about two years consulting for Microsoft. So right around the time of the trustworthy computing memo, and uh, you know, so tons and tons of guidance and patterns and practices for how to build software securely. So I think a lot of the principles still hold. Right. It's just I think the methods have changed because there's so everything about software now is about delivery and it's about getting things out there faster. So, um, and, and I would say, you know, perhaps in a vacuum, the SDL, like the classic SDL might have worked, but, but we know, I mean, the, the real world is not a vacuum and, and there's all kinds of constraints and resource constraints and time constraints. So uh, building secure software and is just incredibly difficult. And I wouldn't say that we we're not close to perfecting it. And then with all the changes and all the different technologies today, it's a, it's a real challenge. I mean, it's a really interesting challenge. I think it's one, you know, one of the harder problems in security. So um, I wouldn't like throw away the SDL as it was, because I think you want the same objectives and things like design reviews and threat models and pen tests and code reviews. Still I don't think those, right? Yeah, they never really go away. You just have to figure out how are you going to how are you going to get that same benefit, but a much faster, much higher throughput way. What does what does defending Netflix infrastructure like to you? Like, what is what what is your priority? Is it just uh, taking care of intellectual property and making sure shows don't get leaked? Is it just availability, keeping the service up? Is it a range of everything? I mean, what is how do you parcel your priorities? Yeah, it's it's a bit of all that. I would say first and foremost for us, we want to protect our our customers' data and, and protect our members' experience. So that's you know we have we have personal data of members, you know, payment information and what they're watching on the service. We want to make sure that that stays private and stays secure. You mentioned content. So in in addition to being a streaming service, of course, Netflix creates a lot of its own content, whether it's documentaries or TV shows. So we want to make sure that that stays, uh, you know, confidential before its release, uh, because there's lots of, you know, there's lots of planning and prep that goes into that. There's all of our corporate information. You mentioned things like intellectual property, whether that's source code or, or business plan. So it's it's a little bit of all of that. Uh, when you decide uh, on on you know prioritizing and, and protecting all of this, you obviously it becomes a, a question of resources and assigning this whole notion of people versus technology. What are we going to put to people? And what do we do? How do we handle uh, certain things differently? And Netflix and your team is known for its renowned actually for its contribution to open source, developing your own internal tools and then shipping it. How do you think about that? What you have to build internally, what you should buy? How do you figure out all those shiny toys um, with everything you have to do? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. I, I would say it's changed over time because when, when I started, so I've been at Netflix a little over nine years. And when I started, um, we were really, you know, getting running in, in Amazon web services and so you know a lot did of you have what the I would... benefit of building it from scratch uh, meaning you did you have to break some legacy things and do zero trust all over again or did you have the benefit of building the po- program from scratch uh, it was a little bit of both i mean we were if you think about like timing wise so you know i think many folks know at least in the u.s you know netflix originally was a, a dvd by mail company mm-hmm. um, and then it kind of moved from that to a streaming company and from that to also a content content creator so 
uh, when I started, uh, you know, when we were, it was kind of early days with, with AWS and, and a lot of the, the problems just were not solved uh, in terms of operating securely in the public cloud. So we, we built quite a lot in the early days. Uh, I think generally, I mean, I, I tend to take that, that sort of cloud view in terms of build versus buy. Like we, we want to, you know, engineers are, are hard to find, you know, good security folks are hard to find. So you really want them on the problems that are really specific and, and high value to your company. So, you know, there's that phrase that Amazon uses, uh, undifferentiated heavy lifting, right? So if, if I can, you know, get a product and maybe it's a commercial product or maybe it's an open source product that can solve some of those problems that are already well understood and well addressed in the marketplace, then there's no reason for us to build that. And we can, we can put our folks, uh, our limited resources on, on problems that are a little more unique to Netflix or, or perhaps a little bit more leading edge that that um, that makes sense for us to invest in. You are you bombarded by vendors knocking on your door all day, and how do you make the judgment that this is a waste of time? Uh, this is not a good use of my time. Versus, hmm, I don't want to miss out on something really interesting and unique. Or are you from that mindset? If it's interesting and unique, it'll bubble up in my network, and I'll, I'll hear about them anyhow. Yeah, it's definitely a, a, a lot of the latter. Uh, I'm I'm lucky to have uh, you know a lot of friends and and colleagues and and just acquaintances in the industry. So typically, if there's something worth looking at, it'll come through one of those channels. But yeah, certainly lots of inbound sales and marketing uh, contacts. Which uh, yeah, it's it's pretty. <laughs> It's pretty over. It's pretty heavy. Are you? I, I was just interviewing uh, Gunter Olman from Microsoft. He's uh, their chief security officer for their cloud group, and he's talking about posture fatigue. Not only alert fatigue and agent fatigue that you guys have to deal with, but there's just this notion of everything. There's a fatigue of everything, and in a pandemic world uh, post COVID, with everyone working from home, are you are you dealing with that? Do you find that? Post-COVID, things are much, much harder for you to manage your program? Uh, well, I think with COVID, you know, we're all under this collective anxiety and uncertainty and, and you know, frankly, grief and depression that's just, it's just, it's, it's impacting us psychologically and mentally and physically. And, you know, friends and family are, are getting sick and in some cases dying. So there's just so much of a, of a uh, you know, a cloud um, above everybody. So I think that's, that's what makes it difficult. Uh, the, I would say the work from home, I mean, that's certainly been a change for Netflix because we've always traditionally been a pretty in-office um, workforce, but I think we've made the, tr- the transition pretty well. But we certainly had to make some, um, you know, make some changes for for some workflows. Like, for example, um, uh, animation artists and, and visual effects artists. Like that was typically work that had to be done in office, just because of network speeds and hardware requirements. So we did a lot of work to enable those folks, those creative folks, to be able to work from home. Uh, we we talked a little bit about. Uh... Uh, tools and people early on. I don't think we got a, like to the end of the answer. Uh, you, your Netflix program, you talk about like limited resources and trying to make the most with limited resources. You guys are actually described in Silicon Valley as the haves because you know there's a haves and the have-nots. People who can actually afford security and a lot of the small and medium-sized businesses that just can't afford good security. Do you believe there's a haves and a have-nots in Silicon Valley? And do you think that's uh, helpful for the rest, for all of us? Uh, I, I do. I, I do believe there's, you know, some pretty big differentiations just in terms of what folks are able to do. And I think it's driven by, uh, you know, understanding. It's driven by talent shortages. Um, and, and then, frankly, you know, I, I look at our discipline, although, it, you know, it's been around and, and I, I myself have been doing it for, I guess, I guess a little over 20 years. I mean, I would say we're still somewhat in, in like an infancy, right? It's it's not like um, 
the problems are solved in security, right? They're still um, they're they're still quite daunting, even for the best equipped security teams, and um, especially when you have to figure out how do you protect uh, an enterprise, how do you protect data, um, and and actually still get business done, right? So the, I think to me those those problems are are not really anywhere close to being solved. So if I if I think of what we're doing today versus 20 years ago, that's a big change. But I think it'll you know be just as different another 20 years from now. So. Uh, and yeah, and when I talk about the haves and the have-nots, I'm talking about programs that have the ability to have its own red team, have its own threat intel team, bring in outside pen testers to work alongside your blue teams. Like all that stuff is like we we mark them as important things in every security program needs to have these things without the reality that not all programs are built equally in terms of financing and resources and i feel like i don't know i feel like as an industry we are catering to the haves all the fancy products and all the real innovation is helping the haves and the small and medium sized businesses without security teams that actually bear the brunt of problems or are left without. It's really pleasant to see folks like you releasing your open source tools, because I know Netflix does. Talk a little bit about the decisions. How do you go about making a decision that this is a tool we can release, what you keep in-house? How, how, how are those decisions made? Oh, sure. Yeah, no. I, so we, we've done quite a lot of open source and security team. I think we're up to maybe close to 20 or so projects. And, and, that, and that was actually one of our uh, principles that we built the program on. So at Netflix, we have this we have this uh, construct that we call strategy bets, and that's where you're you're trying to align the team in a certain way, and and, and it's really you're making these decisions in an area where there's some ambiguity. There, there's not a clear correct answer, uh, but you need to get everybody pointed in the right direction. And and one of our strategy bets as a security team is that we want to share and we want to participate in the community, Why? whether that's why uh, is it important. Well, we, we think of security as a team sport, right? So uh, we want uh, other because it's companies are not really competing on security, right? We're, we're competing on other dimensions. So, you know, if there's something that we do that can help somebody else, then uh, we're happy to share that. I mean, I think I think for us, it's it's less of, you know, do we want to keep something secret or make it public? And it's more around like how generalized do we think the problem is, right? So if I think about uh, Security Monkey, which is, I think it was our first security open source back in 2014. And that was really in the very early stages of the market, which I think right now is called, you know, cloud security posture management or, or CSPM, and because that, that problem wasn't solved. And, and we knew other folks that were going to be using AWS would have similar problems. So it just seemed, it just made sense to, to make it available because, and then, you know, we got lots of uh, great contributions over the years. It's funny though, you, you, you make it sound as though it's one of those no-brainers. But few are doing it, right? So it's not such a no-brainer. And uh, maybe helping people understand the benefits to you. What are the benefits to you from this? Other than a feeling of of altruism, um, is there a recruiting advantage you have? Is there a, a retention advantage you have doing these things? I'm I'm just trying to understand yeah. why aren't more folks doing it? Sure. Yeah, I think there's 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 a little bit of both of those: a recruiting advantage and a, re- and a retention advantage. Because there are some companies who they don't want their folks presenting at conferences. They don't do open source. So that's certainly a draw um, because it also, um, if you think about a candidate looking externally and they want to know more about how does our team work and how do we prioritize. So we, you know, we'll typically, we do blog posts and we do open source, we do lots of presentations. So it allows 
Because it's hard when you're it's a your candidate. It's, it's your advertising for good candidates, right? For strong candidates who want to live in this culture and this world that you have. Yeah, yeah. It kind of gives them a sense of, hey, is this something, does this resonate with me? Do, do, I, do I like these methods? So we, we like to be able to give folks exposure. Because, you know, when you're, when you're looking for a job, it's hard to actually know what it's like to work for that company. So I think it helps how, by being able to open source. How is the decision made to go public versus not going public with something is there uh, has, has there been things where there are bitter fights internally that we should release this and and it never gets released or, or is that just one of the things where you just kind of know what what will eventually get put out no i, I don't think we've ever, i've never been involved in any particular bitter disputes it's typically about how uh like is this a general problem that folks have right so mm-hmm. um or is it something that's kind of niche and specific to our environment and certainly if it's if it's general, then we're going to open source that. I, th- I think a good example is a, a tool we hit, we built called Lemur uh, for folks that remember a heart bleed, right? When we had all these open SSL issues, we had to rotate, I don't know, hundreds or thousands of SSL certificates in a pretty rapid fashion. And of course, that got old. So, you know, we, we thought we built Lemur to do certificate management, monitoring, you know, generation just to be completely hands off. Um, and that's that's a problem a lot of organizations have. So we just we just we open source that. And then by doing that, we got lots of great contributions from the community on it. Yeah. And then Nebula, I'm seeing other folks are actually building companies on top of that. So it's like it, it feels like there's so many additional spin off benefits to pushing something open source, getting these contributions and, and seeing where these things can go. Yeah, I think so. I think that's how we as an industry learn. Uh, you know, we learn from each other and we, we see, well, what, what works, right? What works, what doesn't work. When was the last time you had uh, imposter syndrome? Oh, geez. At a real level, like like you actually sat in a room feeling like, hmm, what am I doing here? Is that something that bothers you at your level? You, you know, it, it does. I think I think at Netflix, it's um, I say I would say like when I'm wor- dealing in the security domain, I feel pretty comfortable, and, and I felt comfortable there for a while. But at Netflix, when I when I deal with our other leaders from across the business, I mean, just like some amazing, amazing folks in all areas of the business, whether it's content or technology, and and I'm I'm just always blown away. I mean, it's it's a great place to work because you know everybody. All, all we have this phrase, stunning colleagues. You know, because everybody you work with is great. So it's, I would say, pretty regularly. You know, to be honest, I, I kind of wonder. You know, what am I doing in the same room with some of these folks? But uh, you know, it's 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 a welcoming. It's, it's a great place to work. Is that something that crosses your mind when you look at your team and you look at your staff that they might be struggling with some of these? And 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 I use I use um, imposter syndrome interchange with just mental stresses and burnout and some of these things. Is that something you're on, especially you mentioned COVID and things are tough for folks. Is that something more on top of your mind? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I try to be, and I don't claim to be an expert, but I think that's part of my general leadership style is to be, you know, pretty connected to the folks on the team. Because I think security, it's just, as we mentioned before, it's a high stress. Uh, It's, it's, it can lead to burnout pretty quick. Because I remember hearing an example one time where you have a lot of these high stress jobs, like maybe an ER doctor or where they have they have lulls though right and then you know like you treat a patient and the patient gets better or it somehow resolves whereas when you're working in enterprise security when you're defending you, it's just an always on right you, you have incidents sometimes and it gets more intense but you never really can can stop so that can really um, I think great on people and um, so I, I I do quite a lot of work and put a lot of energy into making you know, you might call it psychological safety or, you know, just mm-hmm. inclusion is just making, you know, I don't, I mean, 
it's not, not that I feel like everybody needs to be best friends or it needs to be like a family environment, but I want people to feel comfortable at work. I want, I want people to feel like they can be themselves. They can be vulnerable. They can, you know, express their concerns about work or anything else. So I, I would say that's a, in any management job, I think that's, that's important, but I think certainly in a, in a high stress uh, industry like security, it's, it's even more so. One of the things I'm noticing is your public, um, Public work on inclusion, public work on, uh, on on diversity, and just helping newcomers break into security. Uh, why is that such a personal, passionate thing for you? Because hmm. yeah. it's noticeable. Yeah, I think I think with inclusion, with diversity, um, you know, having I guess ex- experienced, you know, feeling excluded myself, maybe it make it makes it a little bit more a little personal. Well, so I mean, I, I so I'm just background wise, you know, I, I'm Chinese American, um, and I grew up in a, a pretty homogenous uh, area of upstate New York when I was when I was very young, and you know, there was just nobody that you know, it was me and my sister were kind of the only. Uh, brown folks in school and, and it was it was uh, pretty much everybody else was white so we we're just you know you're different you get made fun of and you're not sure why and then that those kinds of things of course childhood experiences carry and you through. internalize it and you carry it through the, yeah yeah and, and i think i think with with things like inclusion and diversity i mean anybody can be great at those things right but it's like i think when you're when it when it's impacted you deeply and personally then you um you, you don't just think about it as like an intellectual problem to be solved right you're you 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 know what you it live feels it, right? like. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do we in security have a skill shortage, or 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 are we just not hiring and recruiting properly? Oh, geez, that's a good question. I, I think. I mean, if you if you, I guess if you read the news, not you, because Netflix has uh, unlimited resources to hire people. Oh, I, I wish. <laughs> yeah, there, there, there's always a limit. That's um, the joke, right? Yeah, exactly. The um, I, I think. I mean, I'm really excited now that universities have programs that are they're training people in cybersecurity, and that there are you know lots of ways that people can more formally learn um, the practice um, because we need it, we need a lot it, of people. Is it really preparing people to a university education? Because I feel like it's just so narrow. And things are moving and changing and breaking so fast. Like technologies haven't been invented yet. And it's like, it, it's coming in six months or a year. And, and by the time kids get out of college, you know, microservices will look something completely different in, in two to three years, right? Oh, um, I'm worried. No, I think, uh, yeah, I think I mean, when you think about college or, or whatever, graduate, under, undergraduate, it, it, to me, it's you're trying to build a foundation. Because if I think about the technologies I'm working on now versus, say, 20 years ago, yeah, they're totally different. But the foundations of security, the principles, um, they don't, I mean, it's not not to say they don't advance, but they're, they're pretty stable. They're um, foundational, you, right. Yeah. So, so once you um, get some mastery over those, and then it, I kind of think of it, it's like if you're, uh, if you're a, you know, a builder or anything where, you know, you have to learn how to work with the materials and that, you know, the architectural styles change over the years, but if you know how to work with wood or, you know, how to work with masonry, that's going to be pretty durable. Um, so I think that's, that's how I think about security. It's, and you can never be up to speed on every technology. And, and I do believe the industry has gotten very specialized. I mean, I would say necessarily very specialized. So it makes it a little bit harder because, you know, when I think folks were starting around the time when I was, you know, you were pretty much forced to be a generalist. So I think I think there's value in starting as a generalist and then and then potentially getting 
more specialized or or you know somebody like me who's I've, I've been kind of a generalist my whole career all right i'm gonna let you go with two last closing questions uh, any bit of technology or innovation or idea or concept that is starting to emerge that is super impressive to you that you like anything that's really intriguing and interesting Oof. an area an idea a concept um or are we i would say i mean i would say in general technology or, or at least if i think about um software engineering i think uh, you know serverless functions i think that's going to be pretty transformative uh for security just because it you know raises abstractions and just you know theoretically gives us as security professionals less to worry about um i think i think on the security side and you know of course it's kind of buzzwordy just given covid and work from home but i, I think folks that are um you know, investing more into whether you call it zero trust or beyond corp or you know identity perimeters i think those are um, give you really uh, interesting opportunities to invest um, in in ways that um, you can really buy down risk across a, a bunch of different areas by uh, by moving towards some of those arts. And the last question for you is: There a security problem that you face, or that we have faced, or you continue to face that you feel is just unsolvable? One of those things that just will never go away. It'll be like that itch that just stays there forever. Oh, I would say, I mean, like I mentioned, software security is just super tough. I, I think, I think the mo- the general problem in security that uh, is not necessarily unsolvable, but is incredibly difficult is, is just the malicious insider problem, right? Because you're, to be successful as a company, you need to trust your employees and you need to give them some access, but um, they certainly you know, can use that um, in, in inappropriate ways. And that's just, it's a really interesting problem, but uh, you know, yeah. it's, it's pretty difficult. Yeah, but the, the, the majority percentage of, of breaches that are caused by insiders are tiny, right? I mean, if you read the, v, the DBIR or you listen to the folks at Bishop Fox or these guys doing pen testing, right? It's it's people get in four, four or five simple ways. Password reuse, lack of two-factor authentication, poor cloud configuration, and maybe two or three different things, right? It's And that's been the same for the last five, six years. And I, You make uh, it sound so easy, Ryan. <laughs> You know what I mean, yeah. though, right? I mean, <laughs> no, it, it, we 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 we, we kind of know what a perfect, mature, robust security program looks like, but we know that it also doesn't exist because of all these. Yeah, it's it's things change so quickly. So even things like asset inventory, you know, patch management, these are just eternally difficult problems. And they're just and they're the basics and the boring, unsexy security things that still you know continue to be the most important things. Yeah, yeah, they're tough, and they. And, Super, super important. Uh, what's next for a guy like you? Are you, um, you know, we I saw a, a prior discussion about career paths and the time people spend in, in, in certain places. Do you feel like uh, the, you know, heading a security program is the pinnacle for a, a security professional or is there another level? Ooh, yeah, I mean, it's. I would say it's not for everybody. And I don't necessarily think it's a pinnacle because I think you could, you know, stay as an individual contributor and do lots of great technical work. I think you could work for a product company Company and, and build, you know, the next great security control. So I think this is one path. I think it, it suited me well, just because I tend not to like to do too much sales and marketing. But um, yeah, so I, I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Jason. I appreciate the time. I know it's late in the evening. And I want to be mindful of your private time as well. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you, Ryan. Appreciate it. <laughs>